Welcome to the Buddha Sasana Podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Austin, Texas. Today we want to continue talking about name and form or name and appearance. Name and form refers both to the content of cognizance, that is the world out there as we experience it with all of its objects, and alternatively, it refers to a set of interacting cognitive processes themselves that produce that content. So last week, we briefly introduced name and form. And today, I want to begin by looking at the cognitive processes engaged in producing the content of name and form. Let's take up each factor in turn. To begin with form, form rupa is undifferentiated preconceptual awareness by means of the eye at the level of bare awareness or raw data. We're discussing it with respect to the eye, but form also analogously applies to ear, nose, tongue, and so on. Name holds all the concepts. We saw earlier last week that the Buddha defined form within name and form as the primary elements of earth, water, air, fire, and derivatives thereof. Surprisingly, the great elements are a conceptually rather complex basis for defining preconceptual sense experience. Earth exhibits solidity, water, liquidity, or cohesion, fire, heat, or cold, or combustion, and air motion. I think the Buddha's intention here is not to define form, but to ask us to imagine the most basic, that is, preconceptual level of experience we can. He needs words to teach, and words are conceptual. But the great elements would have had the advantage of familiarity for the Buddha's immediate disciples. For modern listeners, we might similarly describe form as an array of pixels or as shapes and colors playing against our retina, vibrations of our eardrums, and so on, which, while they would strike an ancient Indian as enormously complex conceptually, might suggest the most basic level of awareness for modern people. Nyanananda suggests that forms are like ghosts, not recognizable until name provides an initial perception of appearance. However, Raw preconceptual experience is extremely rich. This is where the taste of vanilla or an orange resides. Aesthetic experiences, mystical experiences, all that we cannot put words to, but are, in contrast, obscured by our concepts. The members of the committee, in its deliberations, will appeal to the eye over and over again, 
to place itself where it can focus on new forms in an attempt to accurately assess what is going on outside the committee room and to plan its response. Recall last week that we discussed the various factors of name and form in terms of a committee meeting in a committee room and deliberating with one another. The members of the committee in all of its deliberations will appeal to the I over and over again to place itself where it can focus on new forms in an attempt to accurately assess what is going on outside the committee room and to plan its response. So form is the first member of this committee. Feeling is the second member of this committee. We've seen that feelings, way de na, are emotive tones associated with aspects of the experiential world along a pleasant, unpleasant scale. We devoted a couple of talks to feelings. Although feeling adds little direct conceptual content, the conceptual factors respond to feeling. When feeling arises, it draws in perception, which easily leads to conceptual proliferation. It also leads to craving, which then gives rise to seeking and then to perception and intention. In these ways, feeling shapes the growth of the world. In terms of the committee analogy, presence of feeling will nudge the other members this way and that in their deliberations giving it a major role in the shaping of conceptual content. Feeling also commonly shapes the production more directly of specific conceptual choices. For instance, slight differences in feeling may make a convincing difference in perception between friend or foe, or ripe or unripe. We saw earlier that inner feelings are often projected into outer qualities of objects. This then forms the basis of additional conceptual content. The third committee member is perception. Objects spring out of experience and declare themselves as familiar things that you can probably give names to. For instance, tree trunks standing, leaves rustling, rabbits hopping, and bluebirds fluttering. We've seen such things before, and they are immediately recognizable. I dare say, without any past experience, there would be no perception, and without perception, the world would be limited to undifferentiated form, a blur of shapes and colors with no prospect of making any sense of it. Perception is responsible for filling in probably most of the detailed content of our outer world. Other committee members are highly dependent on perception to give them something they can wrap their heads around. It's therefore right at the center of producing conceptual content as the committee assesses the situation it presumes is playing out outside of the committee room. Perception is sanya in Pali, like vinyana, cognizance, one of the variants of jnana, knowledge, in Pali. Perception is critically contingent on past experience, and past experience depends on personal history, including cultural and educational influences. Therefore, the content of the world outside of the committee room will differ vastly 
if that one committee member is replaced by another. The next committee member is intention, where perception is receptive, intention is active. In early Indian thought, perception and action are not so clearly distinguished as they are for modern people. This may be why intention is missing as a separate factor in the aggregates, but intention is highlighted as a critical part of the world in the pre-Buddhist Upanishads. This world is a triple reality, name, form, and action. Intention supplements perception by looking forward to what do I do about that? It's about planning actions generally in response to craving. Like perception, intention makes largely familiar responses in familiar perceived contexts, making coffee, offering incense, driving a car. Intention is Chaitana in Pali, active thought, intention, purpose, will, thought underlying action. In a real sense, directing action is a primary function of all of the cognitive factors, and these factors bend toward intention. As we're engaged in the world, the world is saturated with meaning from the start of the kind, this is an aid This is an obstacle. This is what I'm trying to get, according to what we imagine ourselves doing with them. And it makes a big difference in what we experience the world to be. The Buddha said, Bhikkhus, when there are hands picking up and putting down are discerned, when there are feet coming and going are discerned, When there are limbs bending and stretching are discerned. When there is the belly, hunger and thirst are discerned. For instance, what is perceived as a door is not just a physical thing of such and such dimensions and such and such composition. It is an invitation to pass through, pregnant with possibilities. It's not a door at all unless we can envision ourselves, given its dimension and position, as able to pass through it. The door presents itself to perception in whatever way is useful to us to act in it. For a hunter intent on prey, or a bird watcher with binoculars in hand, or a fire lookout, certain objects come to the fore, such as bunny, bluebird, or billowing smoke. Like feelings or intentions often result in our attributing qualities to objects out there as projections of what we inwardly want to do with them. The next committee member is contact. We have contact when we state that such and such exists outside of the committee room. Here it shows up as part of name and form and later will attribute contact to cognizance itself. Here, contact represents the conviction that that object really exists out there, that I experience it, but that its existence is independent of my experience of it. It's such fixed and reliable contacted objects that then give rise to feeling, craving, appropriation, and the rest. 
Its placement here expresses the dependence of contact on the remaining unreliable factors of name and form, form, feeling, perception, intention, and attention. The Sutta Nipata tells us, Having understood name and form as proliferation, that is the root of inner and outer disease, one is released from bondage to the root of all disease. Such a one is called in truth one who knows well. As Jnananda states, the discrimination between inner and outer is the outcome of the inability to penetrate name and form, the inability to see through it. The point is that contact and its objects are presumed but not substantial. And yet this is what the committee does. It attempts to pin down what is going on in the world beyond the committee walls and to plan actions appropriate to what is going on. For that, it needs substantial objects. The final committee member is attention. Attention is a focal point for mental activity. Normally, our attention is drawn sporadically from one place to another. Think of how the eye moves from moment to moment around the visual field. It's also strongly conditioned by desire, in which the eye can become relatively fixed on a specific form. But we can also deliberately choose to pay attention to something, even if it's not particularly interesting. Attention is critically involved in the life cycle of cognizance, descent, and growth, which we discussed in earlier talks and will return to again. Attention is the unnamed factor that determines the site of descent. Cognizance is the unnamed factor that creates objects there. Friends, all things are rooted in desire. They come into being through attention. They originate from contact. They converge upon feeling. Attention is manasikara in Pali. Manasi in mind, kara doing or placing. It's a center of mental activity. An important feature of attention is that it is subject to willful control and seems able with some effort to override the allure of immediate craving as when we make ourselves pay attention. This is often necessary, for instance, to study for an exam in a subject that we find decidedly uninteresting. This capability is critical in meditative exercises like following the breath. We have a choice between appropriate attention, yoniso manasikara, or inappropriate attention, ayoniso manasikara, where yoniso means from the source, getting to the bottom of things. Deliberate, appropriate attention forms an important basis for all of Buddhist practice, about which the Buddha states, For a bhikkhu who is a learner... There is no other thing so helpful for reaching the highest goal as the factor appropriate attention. Wisely striving, a bhikkhu may attain the destruction of all suffering. The last passage about the root of all things continues. 
they, all things, are headed by samadhi, mindfulness exercises authority over them, wisdom is their supervisor, liberation is their core. Attention plays a huge role in what we understand the world to be. As the locus of cognizance, it determines where the world will grow in content or what objects will thereby be presumed. Normally, attention is subject to the influence of the other cognitive factors, including feeling and craving. The hunter ever interested in game finds attention drawn to ground movement, and the bird watcher to the bush. In this way, the experienced world of name and form is highly individuated, largely excluding what is beyond personal desire. Slight differences in attention can frame the world differently. For instance, to determine whether an object is perceived as moving or stationary, Yet through careful control of attention, we can get to the bottom of things and penetrate name and form. The cessation of name and form. We've proceeded in previous talks by teasing apart knot after knot through the tangle of samsara. Having reached the knot of name and form, we hear from the Buddha the importance of its cessation. The Blessed One is asked, A tangle inside, a tangle outside, this generation is entangled in a tangle. I ask you this, O Gotama, who can disentangle this tangle? The Blessed One replies, A man established in virtue, wise, developing the mind and wisdom, a bhikkhu ardent and discreet, he can disentangle this tangle. Those for whom lust and hatred, along with ignorance, have been expunged, the arahants with taints destroyed, for them the tangle is disentangled. Where name and form ceases, stops without remainder, and also impingement and perception of form it is where the tangle is cut. The tangle outside is certainly the mutual conditioning of cognizance and name and form, and productive of objects out there. The tangle inside is presumably the ensnarling factors of name and form. Sense and designation are content. What understanding of name and form teaches us is, most fundamentally, how the world arises on the basis of unreliable cognitive and emotive factors that inspire little confidence that what we see is real. Shining the light of wisdom to reveal name and forms many specious presumptions and impaired partiality, we let go of contact, feeling, craving, and the rest. When we see reality out there as cheap props, cardboard and thin paint, we become disenchanted. The one untrammeled by name and form and passionless, no pains befall. 